I want to ask you to close your eyes for a minute or so. Close your eyes, uh, create some space. Think about these questions. What do you do with the person who cuts you off on the freeway? What do you do in your heart and your mind with the person whose politics seem to you to be either completely antithetical to the way of God or unloving or irresponsible or naive or destructive and or dishonest. What do you practically do with the boss who makes your workplace and your job a miserable experience? What do you do with the person who abused you as a child? What do you do with the person who abused your child? What do you do with the person who seems to be intentionally standing in the way of you doing what you believe God is calling you to do? What do you do with the person who insults you, offends you, disregards you, or disparages you behind your back? What do you do with the person who is ruining your life right now, or ruining your marriage, or ruining your neighborhood, or ruining our world? What do we do with these people? You can open your eyes. We may feel like unfriending these people on social media. We may feel like unfriending them in real life. Like Elijah, we may call down fire from heaven, if we could, on them. Or we may seek or desire to somehow reprogram the GPS map apps on their phone so they are always stuck in the worst, worst traffic. <laughs> we may desire to duct tape them to a chair and sit them in front of hee-haw reruns over and over. Or worse, the Jerry Springer show on an endless loop. And I don't know any middle school TV shows. Or worse, we may subconsciously or privately, secretly wish that those people get what in our minds they really deserve, the kind of life they deserve, the payback that they deserve, the justice that they deserve. The truth is that we already do something with these people and people like them in our minds and with our hearts and sometimes with our words and through our actions. What are we going to do, though, with these people and others like them in the future and as we move forward? That's our question this morning. Pray with me. God, help us to be 
fully attentive to you, to your way, to your word, to your will, to your spirit. Give us eyes that are good to see and hearts that are receptive soil to your word. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words in any way deviate or stray from your word, may they be immediately forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from the Gospel of Matthew this morning from a section of that uh, known as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapter 5 of Matthew, beginning at verse 43. Listen closely. This is Jesus speaking. This is the Word of God. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this is the fifth time in a row now in chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel that Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. And after each of those first four times in chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel, when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, he goes on to quote something from the Old Testament with which his hearers would have been familiar. You have heard that it was said, do not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Do not break your oath, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But this time, in verse 43, Jesus says something that the Old Testament explicitly does not say. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But nowhere in the Old Testament are written the words, hate your enemy. They are, though, to be honest, at times inferred in a couple of the Psalms. More than that, though, is the idea that if a person loves God, which people are called to do, that they conversely will hate the things that are opposed to God, which is what we all do. Anyone who is opposed to what we love, we passively, indirectly make them out to be enemies of that which we love. And so the Jew, spoken or unspoken, right or wrong, could easily think anyone who is an opponent of God is my enemy. I am to love God, therefore hate the enemy. But Jesus teaches his students, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And the first and second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh generations of Christians, of Jesus' followers, were all persecuted. And so Jesus' words were very real and very tangible and very specific and applicable to them. And Jesus calls his disciples, anyone through any time who would seek to be his disciple and find life in him. Jesus calls that person, those people, all of us into his enemy-loving ways. And it is admittedly the most unnatural, abnormal, counterintuitive 
distasteful thing that a person can do. Enemies aren't for loving. Do we agree on that? Enemies are by definition for hating or at least opposing and condemning and disparaging, disliking, defeating, squashing. That's why they are our enemies because we are opposed to them or they are opposed to us or both. We think about how kind or warm we should be toward those who are hostile to us, if at all. We think about, we consider, we wonder how kind or warm we should be toward those who oppose us, those on the other side, those who undermine our views and our ways and our lives. We wonder how much we should love certain people. We consider who we should love unconditionally and who we should love with conditions. And Jesus wants to abolish those distinctions. He calls his disciples to love even their enemies, their political enemies to be sure in that time, and their spiritual or religious enemies to be sure, as well as their personal enemies. Because Jesus knows that when a person is able and eager to love people indiscriminately, a radical transformation has begun to take place and is taking place in that person's heart and their mind and so their whole being. And Jesus points out that this is how God is, loving indiscriminately. Your Father in heaven causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike, indiscriminately. In what science calls nature and Christians call creation, Jesus sees love for enemies. Do you see that? It is not enough to love the people who are like you, to love the people who like you, to love members of your own family or tribe or team or party or ethnic group or ideology. There is nothing special about that whatsoever. Everyone does that. Skaters love skaters. Libertarians love libertarians. Pimps love pimps. Atheists love other atheists. Terrorists love other terrorists. Dodger fans love other Dodger fans. That's just the way things are. But the way things are and the way of the world we all know is deeply lacking and yearns for another way and a kingdom that is somehow profoundly different and better. And Jesus calls people to be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, but this perfect does not mean faultless or flawless. Rather, the Greek word is teleos, which translated into English here is perfect and means complete or mature. And the context here as Jesus in Matthew has reached the pinnacle of his teaching points to teleos, meaning perfect specifically in love. Perfect in love. Not perfect in holiness, not perfect in moral purity, but perfect in love. In Luke's parallel version of this same teaching, Luke records Jesus as saying, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful, with mercy being this form of tender kindness toward another person, which reminds us 
as we've talked about in recent weeks, that the word love, which Jesus calls us to do toward others here and our enemies, doesn't mean romantic love or having feelings of love toward another person, but instead wishing another person well, being committed to another person's well-being, putting another person's well-being ahead of one's own, choosing unselfishly for another's goodness. This is the meaning of the word love that Jesus uses. Do the unfathomable, Jesus says. Love your enemies. It is Jesus at his best, and it is Jesus at his purest. This is Jesus at his very most unique. No one else says this. Lots of things that Jesus said, other people had said, you know that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's the greatest of the commandments, along with love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus wasn't the first to say that. Jesus is at his most unique right here in his teaching. And it is the very heart of the gospel, friends. This drills down to the heart of the gospel. Love your enemies. But how? Not just in what ways, but how do we get there? How do we do that? How can a person do what he or she in her flesh has no desire to do and finds in some ways not only unappealing, but completely unpalatable if you are like me? Here are some steps. First, take, stop, take a deep breath and try to become an objective observer. The first step is going to be hard, but it's necessary. We have been hurt. You have been hurt. You are angry. We have feelings that are very real, but it is important to see around our feelings and eventually overcome them and begin to see other people objectively. Second, put yourself in their shoes. Once you have become an objective observer or somewhat somewhat of an objective observer, Imagine what it is like to be the other person. What is that person like from the inside and on the inside? How did the other person get to be who they are? What have they gone through? What has their life been like? Why would they possibly have done what they did? How did they feel about it? Put yourself in the other person's shoes And imagine yourself as that other person, a real human being, and not just someone who is evil or wrong, though they they may be that. Seek to understand the other person without condemning them, though they very well may be guilty and vile and worthy of our contempt. Seeing the situation from the other person's perspective is difficult, but it is important. Irene Butter, I read this week, a Holocaust survivor wrote, enemies are people whose stories you haven't heard or whose faces you haven't seen. Do something about that. Third, move forward toward acceptance. Accept who the other person is, what they have done, how they are, and how things are. But also note this, that acceptance is not approval. Acceptance does not mean approval. Approval. 
Rather, acceptance simply acknowledges how things are. The past cannot be changed. What is done is done. How a person is is how a person is. And then fourth, forgive. And certainly you saw this coming. It is the most difficult step of all, and it's a sermon and a bunch of steps in and of itself. We've talked about it before. We'll talk about it again. We'll continue to need to work on it. But for this morning, know that an essential step of loving one's enemies is to stop holding on to what a person did in the past, to let that other person out of jail, and more importantly, to let yourself be free from the prison of bitterness and to begin to wish the other person well. The past cannot be changed, but God can heal the past and even redeem the past and people. Forgive. Fifth, find something to appreciate. If you can forgive and release those bad feelings and let go of or surrender your right to get even, you are left then with neutrality. And you want to replace that neutrality with love, which is action. And one way to move in that direction is to find something about the other person to appreciate or to admire or to respect or to enjoy. It could be their smile or their willingness to help someone or their generosity or determination or something you may have in common. Something or some things so that you begin to see them as not completely evil, but rather someone like a loved one or like a good friend or someone who in some way is like you. Find in that person some common ground that you can appreciate. Number six, begin to see the other person as God sees that person. There are two categories of people in the world, perfect people and people for whom Christ died. And since there are no people in category one, in other words, morally perfect people, faultless people, we are all in that second category, and so see that other person as someone who is dearly loved by God and for whom Christ died, just as Jesus died for you and for me. In the words of Dostoevsky, to love someone is to see that person as God intended him or her. Next, number seven, consciously open your heart to the other person. If you are like me, it is easy to remain close to people who have hurt us or with whom we d disagree as a defensive mechanism, as a way of protecting ourselves, as a way of proving ourselves right or justifying ourselves. We are afraid of being vulnerable, afraid of being wrong, afraid of being on the wrong side of history, afraid of being rejected or hurt. But if we cannot open our hearts to others, we will remain stuck. And then pray. And this is absolutely key according to Jesus. Pray and ask God to have mercy on the other person and to heal the other person and to bless abundantly the other person. Ask God to open the eyes of their heart, to fill their cup with good things, and to bring them joy and to redeem their mistakes. 
pray everything for the other person that you would pray for yourself and that you would want other people to pray for you and on your behalf. Wish them well before God. C.S. Lewis says that as we do this, we will actually come to love the other person as we love ourselves. And then finally, reach out to the other person or other people. It's one thing to feel love and it's another thing uh, to even will love, but the love of which Jesus speaks, you remember, is action. It is in this world hands-on expression. And there are many ways to express love with one's words, with a greeting. Jesus encouraged his followers to greet their enemies on the street, which usually involved the word shalom, which had loaded into it a wish, a well-wish of God's blessings upon a person, shalom. We can express love by writing a note, giving a gift, serving someone, doing something nice, giving a hug, a handshake, or even a greeting. And always pray, which we will do in a few minutes. And as hard as these nine things may seem, we can do them all. When the Apostle Paul wrote from prison to the Christians in Philippi, these often taken out of context words and frankly misused words, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. He was not talking about running a marathon. He was talking about persevering in persecution and doing what God had called him to do, chief among which was to love his persecutors, to love those who had imprisoned him, to love his enemies. Jesus doesn't just call us to this, but he also gives us the power and the spirit and even the will and the courage to do what he is calling us to do. And the benefits of this are many. When we love our enemies, we experience greater happiness and greater joy and greater peace as the anger and the bitterness within us dissipates and is replaced with mercy and goodwill toward all. When we love our enemies, we cooperate with God in bringing about goodness and maybe even redemption and healing and happiness and salvation in other people's lives. When we love our enemies, we are reconciled to former friends and sometimes make new friends. Building on something Abraham Lincoln wrote, Martin Luther King Jr. declared, love is the only force that is capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. And he was right. And when we love our enemies, we show others and we show the world, or God shows through us, that another way and that a better way is possible and is available with God's help. And then most important of all to Jesus, when we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, Jesus says we become children of our heavenly Father. We become then children of our Father in heaven. 
that relationship is nurtured, that relationship develops, that relationship grows, and who we are develops and grows, and we are transformed and made more and more and more into the likeness of our teacher, of Jesus, and of God, his Father. And so to these things we are not only called or commanded, but also invited because God loves us. What are we going to do with the people we talked about at the beginning? Jesus calls us, Jesus invites us to do with them and to them and for them what God has already done for Jesus in Jesus for us. What are we going to do with those people? May we go through those steps until we become like Jesus and are able to do to them and for them and with them all that God our Heavenly Father has done and continues to do in Christ for us and to us in all of His grace and He will be glorified. We're going to take a minute now and pray. And I'm going to ask you to bow your head and have some silence and to go through your life to see if there are enemies there. I don't know a church that does this or what may become our practice, but there is good reason to think that in the earliest church, in its earliest forms, that when they came down the paper in the order of worship in the printed bulletin to where our bulletin says prayers of the congregation and for the world, their bulletin said prayers for our enemies. What would a church be like if that was its focus? Let's pray together. God, we ask that you would bring to mind people who are like enemies to us. Enemies of our state, enemies of our politics, enemies of our faith, enemies of us personally, enemies of our family, enemies of our parents, enemies of our children enemies of people like us. And by your spirit and by your grace and according to your leading and your teaching and more poignantly your way demonstrated in Jesus. Bless those people. Fill their cups with good things. Pour into their hearts your spirit. Love them with Jesus' arms wide open. Forgive their sin. Protect them from temptation. Put food on their tables. Be their manna. 
bring joy to their lives, to their hearts, to their households, to their families. And by your grace and in your kingdom, make us into brothers and sisters. Make us one under your lordship. Forgive us for not having desired, wanted any of these things in the past. Forgive us with, for acting with spite toward our enemies. Forgive us for acting and speaking and thinking with ill will toward others. Even when we have justified such, we realize there is no room in your kingdom for such things. Forgive us, heal us, restore us, set us on a right and good path. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.